Welcome to another episode of Petty Politics. Bringing you the petty. And also the politics. What's going on? I'm Cam. This is Bree. And today we have a very special guest that we wanted to Amazing introduce you to. Amazing special guest, my favorite. His name is Jonathan Allen. What's up, Jonathan? <laughs> hey, y'all. So tell on? us a little bit about him real quick, Cam. Sure. So Jonathan Allen is a law student at Boston University School of Law. Ooh, He's in yes. his second year moving yes. right on up to 3L. Hey. 3L. You ready for it? Yeah, I can't wait. Okay. 3LOL is a lie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like, I'm supposed to be LOLing, but I got into Fed courts and I'm not laughing at all. Well, you There's see, like nothing funny about this. You see, Jonathan isn't worried about that because Jonathan has been through this already. He has mm-hmm. already completed a master's program in divinity, so we have a preacher pastor here. Do you hear me? Amen. Hello. We need. I, I'm gonna put in a little like church sound bite right there. Cool. Let's get it. We're gonna get a little bit of a sermon today. Talk about some political spirituality with a little bit of help for Jonathan, who is also newly engaged. Oh my goodness! Yes, thank you all so much. Moving Shout it all the way Derek. out. Shout, Shout out to Derek Young. Yes. I miss you. <laughs> what else are we talking about besides political spirituality today, Bree? Today we're actually going to get into some other politics, particularly North Korea and South Korea. Also, America's involvement with them and whether or not we should be involved. That's always a question when it comes to this global stage that we're on constantly. We're also going to get into the petty. You guys already know. What are we going to talk about today? Okay, so... We're just going to show the two very different sides of black America today. We're going to talk about Kanye West. Okay. And his commentary. Oh, Lord have mercy. We, 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 you know we, it. You know exactly. it. Exactly. And if you don't know it, you need to go Take look at it. TMZ, yeah. Twitter.com. <laughs> Twitter.com. Type in Kanye on Google. Okay. And then we're also going to talk about Childish Gambino. We're going to talk about his new music video for This Is America. Incinerated my edges. Incinerated my edges. I am no. Come on. Y'all saw that video. He's dope. All right. Let's go. Let's get into it. All right, y'all. We're going to go ahead and get started with the Life in the Law segment. I'm really happy that we have another law student here to be able to talk through this because we've really been talking with like practitioners. We've been talking with people in the legal profession. They graduated years ago and can give us some wisdom. But I think it's important for us to talk about our experiences, especially with folks who still are in law school and are about to continue for one more year. Because, Jonathan, you still have one more year. You're about to start your third year. But fortunately, I'm halfway there. Right. Halfway there. Oh, more than halfway yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Like More than halfway. Like 60%. So. Let's go. Um, so, so first and foremost, tell us a little bit about your decision to go to law school, especially after already going through a graduate program. Mm-hmm. What kind of made you feel like you needed more training or that a legal degree would actually be helpful for you? Yeah, when I went to SMU for theology school, and, and let me back up and remind folks who don't know and inform people who need to know. I've been preaching since I was 11 years old. And I was licensed at 14 and ordained at age 20. And so all of my life, I've been invested in people's lives. And after going to theology school, I began to learn more about systems and structures and how they impact people's lives and felt compelled and convicted that I needed to learn a little bit more about the legal system. I thought at that time that I was to go off and become a practicing attorney. But after being in law school, I I realized that that is not my path. Actually Mm. practicing law as an attorney is not the role that I have. I am to impact culture Mm. and, and shift the way that we interact with one another because it is then that I believe that we can have a significant effect on the systems that exist in, of course, partnership with those who are within the legal system and who are doing the litigating and the lawmaking. I really like I really like that you bring up structures and ways that we can dismantle them, especially from our positions within the legal sector. And one question that I had, and I've also been struggling with because I am going into big law and particularly private sector once I leave law school, is whether or not you think that top-down litigation as opposed to grassroots mobilization, being on the ground, being ones who I think are directly affecting culture, whether or not you think the other model, which is working within the legal realm in big law and private sector, can also be as influential. I think they must work together. 
Mm-hmm. I think that working top down only obviously has not worked. And so we do need to find ways to work together and build stronger partnerships mm-hmm. between those who are in corporate law and in big law firms, so to speak, and those who are working on the ground in mm-hmm. the grasses with the people mm-hmm. who are struggling. Um, I heard someone um, call it the pool of the vulnerable. Yeah, uh, Working mm-hmm. with those who are in the margins from the grassroots is very, very important. But I really, really believe that we have to find ways to mobilize people because people power, I believe, is so, so essential. Um, Right now, we have grassroots organizations and activists who are doing a lot of mobilization work, but I am still convinced that the people have not been mobilized yet. Mm -hmm. The people have not been mobilized yet. I'm I'm happy with your response because it's it's hard to kind of navigate your role as an attorney being black, being American, and you get into that kind of dual persona that's been talked about by W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. And so it's difficult to navigate yourself and in terms of finding your role. And I always reference back to this one article written called Embracing the Tar Baby, mm, and it's mm, like, well, mm. how do we take down the master's house using the master's tools? tools? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. How do we dismantle these institutions? And law school itself is a capitalistic institution. Absolutely. And it is used most to oppress people in marginalized communities of which we want to go out and speak for. And mm-hmm. so just knowing so early on, too well year, that you of your role or that you don't want to be playing the role in the top-down litigation model and you know what kind of structure you want to dismantle and how you want to dismantle is very important to me. I think that was my question, too, because I feel like you gave us a mission. You know what I mean? Yeah, like you, we have I, can, one. I feel the preacher man in you already because it's kind of <laughs> like you know what you want to do um, and most I feel like you speak it. Most law exactly. Oh, yeah, most, yeah, most mm-hmm. students don't. And, and that so, should, yeah, that should be a disclaimer. It's so, criti- it's so critical and this is in no way a slight to any of my colleagues uh, and but the reality throw that is, shade throw the shade right. no. the, reali- <laughs> the reality is most folk in law schools have no clue have no clue what they're doing mm-hmm. um, and what's even more travesty is that many of them travesty of a preacher word do you hear me sure do you I hear say me? travesty all the time it is horrible it, it is uh-huh. what's saddening it's a travesty and disheartening to justice. It is. It's a travesty to justice. And I really, really think that we have to realize that, like Charles Hampton Houston says, um, lawyers are social engineers. Right. 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 We we are supposed to be working to figure out how to resolve people's problems. And when we become selfish, that we focus and allow our legal degrees and legal education to become a money-driven focus. Right then we're forgetting about the people who are hurting and who need us most. Mm -hmm. And that's why I came to law school, to think about the people who are hurting and who need us most. Mm -hmm. And it aggravates me, it frustrates me when I'm in class and we're going over cases and people are talking about all of these economic arguments instead of naming racism, instead of saying, we know why this person did not receive adequate representation. We know why this person did not receive um, due process. Mm -hmm. We know why this person was arrested in the first place. Right. We just don't want to talk about that part. We just don't want to talk about that part. And so legal education in many ways in most of our schools um, is subpar. Mm-hmm. I tell BU Law all the time, and I hope y'all watch this, that, yeah. that, <laughs> Pay attention. that we are sending out <laughs> ill-equipped attorneys. Ill-equipped right. attorneys. People exactly. are going out into the world as attorneys, and they're ill-equipped because they are not aware and they are not being trained to think about the impacts that they are making when they make certain decisions, when they fail to make certain decisions because everything is not just about what you do it's also about what you don't do it's not right exactly. everything's not about the what you say what, what what didn't you say what mm-hmm. what what did you not bring up what did you not address? i think that this gets into a, a very much more nuanced discussion in ways in which the law school curriculum is currently failing particularly african-american communities absolutely and so and i understood for example you spoke about ways for example we're in law school and we don't point out racist or sexist or homophobic um, infrastructures within the law or why was this person arrested or you know the underpinnings of each 
of each allegation. And that's just from being taught the law objectively. Yeah. Right. And we've spoken about that several times. Like we need to learn the law subjectively in order to understand how racism and sexism and so on and so forth are intricately and inextricably tied within the law Absolutely. system. Absolutely. Right. Because I think, we don't live in a colorblind society as right. law schools try and get us to think about it objectively. In we're not post-color, no. okay? We will not, we're not post-racist no. error. We are not colorblind. We're not post-racial. And no like, matter how much y'all try to push us and Kanye, and we'll get into that later, we, we are not post-racial. No. <laughs> so, so I think that was an important thing to kind of flesh out, especially because you have this background in divinity studies. You've thought about this from a very emotional and spiritual standpoint, which I think, honestly, if you ask me, is a thing that isn't taught in law school. At all. It isn't, like, we aren't taught about heart. We aren't taught about how to engage um, with the clientele. But again, like I said, how to engage with ourselves. Exactly. Because going through these classes, as we've talked about together, Brie, itself is an emotional experience. Heck, heck yeah. it's a, it, it, for many, it's a form of trauma. Right, because you're listening to these stories be told that have erased you and your community as subjects, right? They're plaintiff or victim or defendant in these cases, but they aren't, you know, black men who came from this part of the country who have experienced this. And so I was going to ask you, what resources or what supports did you find at BU when you kind of came to that mission and announced that mission Mm -hmm. to your classmates and to your Mm -hmm. faculty? But I assume there weren't many. Not many. So what did you do instead? How did you build up? yourself in that process I how how are you I suppose because you still are doing it yeah so for example I am currently in an externship program Mm -hmm. at BU and part of our curriculum is to study the model rules of professional responsibility or professional conduct and we have to of course write our final paper and of course I'm here at Harvard Law at the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute as one of the fellows Mm -hmm. and in thinking about what I would write about I said there's no way that I cannot talk about political spirituality and my professor said oh you know, that's, that? that's, what's that? <laughs> that's so cool. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Me neither. What, what are before you talking today, about? I swear, yeah. And I and, and I told her, I said, well, listen, if you take a look at the model rules of professional responsibility, it outlines certain responsibilities that lawyers have. Legal ethics, they say, and right? Legal mm-hmm. ethics. And beside being a zealous advocate for your client, one of our roles is also to be a public citizen. And to fight to address where within the legal system are we failing the public? Mm -hmm. Where in the legal system are we perpetuating injustice? That is one of our roles and responsibilities. And so even in that sense, I believe that lawyers, legal advocates, we have a morality mandate, a morality mandate Mm -hmm. to address systems that oppress people. And that in a country that professes to be founded off of spiritual tenets, and certainly we have in God we trust on our dollars, we have um, the Pledge of Allegiance that professes that we're one nation under God. So we can't—it's irresponsible to study law without thinking about spirituality and theology. But we must also think about that very contextually because the same members, the same framers who wrote in One Nation Under God and who put that on our dollar bill were also the ones who were enforcing and endorsing and implementing slavery. That is why political spirituality is so important because political spirituality suggests that you can't tell me that you believe in a God Mm -hmm. and still perpetuate injustice. Mm Because, like James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez says, who are liberation theologians, and James Cone, black mm-hmm. liberation theology, and mm-hmm. God bless him, he just passed this past week. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. These individuals says that God is on the side of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And this God that you serve, that you think oppresses people and allows for people to be oppressed, Mm -hmm. that's a false understanding of who God is. Matter of fact, James Cone would take us even deeper and say, for those of you who are Christian, Mm -hmm. 
you profess to believe in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And the story and the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ is one that challenges oppressive systems mm -hmm. if you study him. If you study if you, if if, if you study you that. Study Exodus. Him. Right. Okay. Right. The Israelites. Right. Okay. Do you hear me? Um, okay. So, so if you see God working through, right, the Exodus is very important because if you see God working in all of these stories that we see in the Bible, you, you, you do see a God that is challenging oppression. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, political spirituality says that we have to be addressing that in every facet of our lives, in every aspect of our lives. We need to be thinking about our actions and our relationship with one another. And that's who I believe that God is. I believe we know God more mm -hmm. by being in relationship with others. The more we get to know each other, the more time we spend together, I think I get to know God more and more and more. Mm -hmm. I was speaking to um, Kaya Stern, who's at the Prison Studies Program, and we had a conversation the other day, and we said, um, God is in the eye of the other. Mm. So, Bree, I know God more by looking into your eyes. Cam, I know God more by looking into your eyes. Mm -hmm. And when you look into mine, our souls exchange intellect. Okay. They exchange experience. And when we know more about each other's experiences, we know more about our role and responsibility to humanity and to all of creation. Well, and I'm <laughs> I want to, yeah. one thing that I, I know, Brie, we had been talking about too, is that, you know, again, having someone like you in law school classroom or even in a community is so important because it helps you to recenter your experiences, right? Yeah. And being at Harvard, I don't really feel like we had anyone like that. I know one person who actually is a is a, a preacher. Uh, Cornel but, West. Um, well, no, I mean students. I mean students, right? I know yeah. one preacher, I think she's uh, too well. But um, I don't have anyone in my classroom who could be okay. telling me things like mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm, I do mm -hmm. have people, and, and we've shared this, who can tell me about their collective trauma, and we can kind of, we can heal through talking about the fact that, yes, we both are going through this right now. Yes, depression is a big deal for us. Yes, we are thinking about our anxiety, and we have to go and talk with a therapist. How has being able to tap into this political spirituality influenced you and influenced your track through law school in comparison to people who probably aren't as spiritual as you are. It's kept me focused. Yeah. It's kept me focused on what matters. Mm -hmm. It, it's also helped liberate me, mm -hmm. right? Because before coming to law school, I had, I was just coming out to my family as mm -hmm. gay mm -hmm. and dealing with all of these identity yeah, yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, and so that was challenging in itself. And so entering law school and your father's not talking to you, uh, your yeah. grandmother's disappointed in you, those, those challenging, challenging times for me. Yeah. Thank God I have an amazing fiancé um, who has been even essential to my theological formation. Mm -hmm. He's not a preacher. He's never gone to theology school. But learning how he sees God, mm -hmm. right? Jonathan, I, I just don't think that God hates people. Something so simple right. as that has transformed me in a radical way. Why? Because I, I believe it. But that's not what we teach. That's not what we teach. Right. And in our community, certainly the black community, right. which is very, very influenced by religion. And also very hyper-masculine. It's very hyper-masculine. black women. Right. It's, it's okay. ridiculous. And, and, and others. Right. You know, and it's so critical that... We address this idea of toxic masculinity. I'm, I'm one of the toxic founders. It's very toxic and and it's dangerous to our progression for sure. But I think I was in a meeting yesterday. I'm founder of uh, one of the co-founders of a new organization called B Men, uh, which is the Black Men's Engagement Network. Oh wow! And we're mm -hmm. starting up here in Boston with a mission to address toxic masculinity um, and. The sexual assaults and sexual harassment that our black women encounter and experience at the hands of black men, mm -hmm. and wanting to help our black men to reimagine our cultural values yeah. and what it means to be masculine in the first place. And so, bridging all of us from whatever spectrum in which we identify as male, so those of us that are gay, those of us that are straight, bringing us together into the same space to talk about brothers, well, we got some issues. Right. And our black women are not okay. Mm. Someone told me yesterday, they said, you know, I, I finally came to the realization that our black women are not okay. But 
They do a very good job of being on <laughs> and, like and, and, and pulling it together and raising babies while in law school. But they going through some stuff that they don't even get the opportunity to lay on the table for us. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't even know half. I, I, I don't even know half of mm-hmm. your experience as much as I would like to internalize it and attempt to empathize and be in solidarity. Nobody knows like a black woman what a black woman endures and experiences in this world. And we got to start being intentional about trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. and doing everything that we can to alleviate some of the negative experiences that our black sisters are experiencing in this world. How do you use that intentionality in the law school classroom to advance your own understanding of the law, but also your career objectives? Right, because I Mm -hmm. feel like the way you've kind of set it up is a church feels like a law school classroom in some regards, right? We profess to teach one thing. We profess to teach you how to be a good lawyer, how to think about the law, how to act upon the law. But then you leave after three years still kind of like, well, what actually did I learn, right? Yeah, if if anything, Mm -hmm. you you learn, one, to insert everywhere you can justice. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then you also have to be intentional about building relationships. You have to build relationships. Even as a lawyer, you can't think about the law without thinking about the church, without thinking about the school, without Mm -hmm. thinking about the hospital. We have to be intentional about building cross-cultural and cross-industrial relationships. It's it's so, so important. Mm -hmm. Um, And above all, um, you cannot, you cannot disconnect from spirituality, from your heart, from the soul. Yeah. You can't look at things objectively. You you have to internalize the experiences and the stories that fall behind the cases that we read and the people that we represent. Well, amen on that. That was amen. actually that was, that was, that was, amazing. That was amazing. Thank you so much this for that. Incredible. And I think, you know, obviously if we had more time, we would go into so many more things. Because yeah. I think that, again, infusing the notion of political spirituality into the legal profession is so important and so well needed. Um, but we do have things to talk about. But Let's I appreciate you, you no, talking about um, political spirituality with us. And I'm sure that you need to be writing about this more. Ho- hopefully there'll I be should. a book out here about I should. this. You're pushing me. I, I think I would. I think you'd get a lot of people to think differently about the legal profession hmm. by doing that. Hmm. So, so I appreciate you talking with this us about beautiful. this specifically for Life in the Law. So for the political... Today we're going to be talking about North and South Korea. It's very important. Recently, the leaders of North and South Korea agreed to work to remove all nuclear weapons from the Korean Peninsula and, within the year, hopefully, pursue talks with the United States to declare an official end to the Korean War, which has ravaged the Korean Peninsula. If you guys know the history about this, we're going to get more into it later, from 1950 to 1953. But as we all know, from because of the armistice and because everyone has not necessarily denuclearized and lifted economic sanctions. This has gone on until, like, two weeks ago. Basically. Basically, it's been an ongoing the war conflict. is still happening right now, and it's still problematic. Right, right. <laughs> Honestly, the Korean War is, is something that has been going on for so long, but few people really understand or know much of the history behind it. And honestly, mm-hmm. I blame my history professors and teachers. I do. I do. Day. We didn't really focus on this. I never. Like, I actually only learned about the Korean War after leaving secondary um, education, keeping in mind that one of the biggest shows of the 70s and 80s was called MASH, and it actually was yeah. about the Korean yeah. War. Mm-hmm. And apparently, like, it, its final episode was the most watched show in television history, what? and I think it still is. Huh. So it's like, the fact that people were watching the show, but probably still don't know much about the Korean War shows like how well we're actually doing at explaining this. But in many ways, just to give kind of a context and history of it, North Korea and South Korea have always kind of been embroiled in a, I don't know if I would call it a proxy war, but at least an ideological and economic battle between the viewpoints of the West, which is capitalism, free market, let's say fair capitalism, um, and the 
East, in this case being communism, Soviet Russia, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Russia's playing a part, like they play a part in everything else, including our democracy. They just stay <laughs> right. they're, they're always in the two. We're going to get into that later. We'll, but... Right, we'll get into it. <laughs> but like, and, and China also had a very significant role as well as kind of being in the fray in, in very visceral and physical ways because of proximity to um, the Korean Peninsula. And so basically in the 1950s, the Korean War began. It was over distinctions between South and North Korea. And it was also, again, based on these ideas of how an economy should work, who should be forefronted, how the rule of law should operate. Um, mm-hmm. And really, there was never any reconciliation, mm. right? They At the end of this war, the United States worked to support a ceasefire and then basically an armistice, as Bree said, where there is now a demarcation line at the 38th parallel, which is like latitude-longitude type stuff. <laughs> which I don't um, know anything about. A two-mile demilitarized <laughs> zone, which is kind of like, imagine just like the pettiest, most tense space you could ever have between two mm-hmm. like rivals right there in the middle. Um, and for the past five some odd decades, they've just kind of been at war. Right. It hasn't been a physical war, per se, but it's been one of a Cold War in the same way that America and Russia have had a Cold War. You start firing missiles and be like, look at all these fancy missiles. These aren't fireworks. They're coming for you behind. Right. Like um, it's just been a lot of fighting, a lot of rhetoric. And of course, there's actually been moments where people have negotiated. They've said, yes, we'll, you know, have a conversation. We'll go to the demilitarized zone and have a dialogue, try to negotiate. I don't know if that's actually going to be something that changes or is in any way meaningful, keeping in mind what we now know. So with all of this history in mind, of course, what we're hearing in the news is really historic, but contextually, it kind of leaves a little bit of room for doubt. So let's actually talk about what has happened recently, Brie. So, I mean, recently, uh, South Korea has proposed economic incentives to get North Korea to denuclearize. As we all know from the past, um, North Korea has been testing nuclear missiles, um, actually illegally. They have been going outside of their purview to do that. President Trump has been trying to stop them from doing that. There's been kind of a hyper-masculine Twitter macho war, like, whose gun is bigger? Yeah, my button is bigger than yours. So Trump has gotten involved trying to denuclearize North Korea, and then he goes and gets China involved, and he tells them to implement heavy economic sanctions against North Korea because they're still involved in this armistice. They're still nuclearizing their um, side of the peninsula. And so South Korea steps in, and this is uh, Mr. Moon. So we have um, Mr. Kim, who's North Korea, Mr. Moon, who's South Korea. Mr. Moon steps in and he says, hey, you know, I just want peace. We have really great road systems. We have really great trains. We will help you economically and such if we can come to some sort of peace treaty. And North Korea thankfully was very receptive towards this. So now they're having, um, they're undergoing a bit more talks about this, but they've implemented a peace treaty. And let's let's think about also the fact that this has been a long time coming, at least for a couple of months, right? We started with a lot of extreme aggression, as has already been described, but then we had the Olympics happen. And the Olympics North Korea knew would be a very important moment for them to show some type of solidarity. Because all this time, North Korea has wanted to be on the world stage. Mm-hmm. That has been mm-hmm. their primary mission, right? Talking with America, in part, shows that they are on the world stage because they're engaging with national leaders. But so, too, does the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, the Olympics, like, mm-hmm. the world stage came to them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't have to go nowhere. All they had to do was say, look, okay, we feel you, South Korea. Like, we we have, feel you. I know we got some beef. <laughs> we have beef but with like, everybody right now. Right. And so they actually <laughs> joined forces for the sake of the Olympics. They actually joined forces. And that mm-hmm. was itself a very important diplomatic image to see, right, because the entire world was watching. And then now it kind of folds into some smaller behind-scenes dialogue, keeping in mind that the Trump administration is still involved with that. Um, the new Secretary of State... Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Pompeo. <laughs> we have a new one. If y'all didn't know, if we, you guys didn't we know, they, they, go, they come and go so quickly. So. Like a revolving door in the White House. Rex Tillerson so is no more. Rex Tillerson is no more. He's been out. Rex it. He wrecks it. But but Mike Pompeo had met with North Korean officials privately, and no one knew about like secretively. He went there on a secret mission, basically. So it's just kind of like 
are we actually being told the full story? Do we actually know what's happening? We, I mean, but do we ever? Like, with right. the, especially within this political spectrum. So I wanted to kind of take this issue on in two different angles. My first issue was not to be the bearer of bad news or not to be the pessimistic one, but do we think that North Korea is going to uphold their half of the deal? Several times in the past, North yep. Korea has made deals with people. They've gotten their economic sanctions lifted, which is what they're mostly prioritizing here, yep. especially with the fact that Mr. Kim stepped into this meeting and admitted to the flawed infrastructure. He said, you know, you would be ashamed of our roads and our trains, basically. Right. He said that to South Korea, uh, Mr. Moon. So do we think that this is all pretty much dramatization um, just to get these economic sanctions lifted enough for North Korea to make their me next move in terms of nuclearizing their, their side of the peninsula again, as opposed to actually wanting a peace treaty? What do you think, Jonathan? Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know their motivations. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's so it's so vague, and we can make all kinds of assumptions. But, right. But I think having all of these years of of feud, and now we're having these moments where there 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 seems to be some progress. I'm still trying to internalize and assess what's mm -hmm. really happening. I mean, it could be performative discourse. Yeah. And like Cam said, we don't really know what's going on because we still don't really have a substantive treaty. There's no, no right. there's no timeline. No. There's yeah. So, so it's hard to assess exactly, their objectives. Exactly. When exactly. I don't know. There's only. I mean, it's, it's not only hard to assess their objectives. It's hard to assess their seriousness. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or their intentionality. It certainly is performative, right? I don't it know if you guys got to see the video, but like. There was a very specific moment where the two leaders of um, North and South Korea meet at the demilitarized zone, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a moment, the way that it's set up, there's like literally different like type of ground to determine like what is North Korea, what's South Korea. Like they literally have like different pavement and they started on either there. side of the demilitarized zone. It's all so they propaganda. Meet. What they happened is they walked into the demilitarized zone, shook hands, and then each ceremoniously walked onto the other side of, of oh, you know, the Lord. side that they did not represent. Well, yeah. I don't know. They have never been on each other's sides. I think more symbolic. Like, okay. Well, that, that's what I mean by performative. Oh, I, I'm thinking, yeah. When I say performative, it, I'm thinking, yeah. I'm saying fake. Like fake, I think that yeah. this whole thing is like performative yeah. discourse. Like, okay, they're just saying all of these things they have a plan with a lack of foundation mm -hmm. so when are they backing out this armistice and, and they could all fall apart at it any could moment. fall right. apart because north korea is known to do this yeah watch out for he sneak up in y'all land and yeah, hello that is what mr kim does next thing he's gonna be tweeting at uh, mr moon so one thing i do know right at least to your question brie about whether these like economic sanctions are going to be enough to change them right we can look to other countries that have been sanctioned by america for example, mm -hmm. Cuba. Cuba had the Cuban embargo that was recently lifted maybe a year or two ago, right? And people yeah. were like, yeah, I can finally go to Cuba for vacation, whatever. All my friends, I'm sure you probably have friends who went to Cuba yeah. to visit, right? Yeah. If you look at the pictures from Cuba, all of the things that like Cuban residents lived with in 2018 look like they're from 1980, Yeah, right? The I cars mean, are still like 1980s old school American. It's also true, but like you said before, like if we look mm -hmm. at this on a historical context and platform, Russia is heavily involved in Cuba, just like Russia is heavy, heavily involved in this. And regardless but that's why of, they're, exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. it's all yeah. connected. The reason that these countries are one, being sanctioned, okay. two, involved with Russia, and three, poor as hell, <laughs> are all due to the fact that they stand against what America believes in. Mm -hmm. Cuba and North Korea both have pursued communist agendas, right? Mm -hmm. And also have expressed anti-American views very openly, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Fidel Castro um, and many of the folks in Cuba were very, like, they worked with, uh, with America in some regards, and there's a little, like, complex history there, too. But... The overall message was that American capitalism, Western imperialism is not what we stand for. Yeah. Um, and so if we look at what happened with Cuba, now that the embargo has been lifted, they've been seeing a lot of economic development. A lot of the tourist economy has come back mm -hmm. that gives them new revenue to expand and build on an infrastructure that, mm -hmm. again, has been dilapidated for 40 years. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true in North Korea. North Korea, they're still using the white computers from like the 1990s. Yeah. Those are the types of equipment they have. And of course they have other things. Yeah. But whether or not removing these economic sanctions and them upgrading in terms of innovation will be enough for them to actually change 
Like it's literally yeah. if having MacBooks in in North Korea valuable enough to prevent me from putting this nuclear warhead on the top of this missile and shooting it out. I mean, but I'm, that's the main killed his own brother. I don't. <laughs> and, and, exactly, exactly. The T, the T. But I mean, again, and that's where I agree. At least if I ever ever could agree with anything Donald Trump says, with him saying that we need to see Mr. Kim in North Korea make substantial progress um, towards dismantling their nuclear arsenal before we lift our maximum pressure campaign. And I think that China should follow that. But also in saying that, that takes on my second angle, my second issue with this. I said I wanted to address this from two angles. My second issue is, what does this mean for America on a global stage? Because a lot of people are giving credit to Trump for this peace treaty. Which Literally, I, they're I, giving like, no, Trump they're like, credit. Not <laughs> even, not, not <laughs> even though. They want to give him a Nobel Peace Prize. Literally a Nobel Peace Prize to Trump for this. So what does this mean when we think about multilateralism in terms of Trump's associations with not only China, but with North Korea and South Korea, and also the way that the United States is looking on a global stage so we can look at globalization. And then we can also think about exceptional, exceptionalism because all of these things are intersectional. Right. Think about, oh, mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. the United States is the biggest and the baddest, and we are over here making things happen. But is that exactly what we're doing on a global stage? And is our interference in these foreign affairs actually weakening our platform? I think it's important to think about this specifically from the context of America first. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Trump is by all means what we would call a protectionist in terms of economic trade policy, meaning that he does not want us to be working with, trading with, creating relationships with other countries in a mutually beneficial manner. Mm -hmm. He really wants it to be, if you're not helping us specifically and explicitly, then it's not worthwhile, right? Mm -hmm. Even though sometimes it might be like, you know, we'll give you, you know, we'll trade with you in food, and then as a result, you trade with us in military support or intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not always going to be tit for tat. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Apples Mm -hmm. to apples. It's going to be, they give you different things. Trump doesn't get that. Mm-hmm. Right. Trump literally he doesn't get much about foreign policy. But right. Also right. that. And so that's why it's so weird to think of him as being this great negotiator between yeah. North and South Korea, <laughs> because that how does again, keeping in mind America first, this has to then mean that North and South Korea benefits the American agenda in some particular way. What is that and how does that work? He then did one he episode no of The bias. Apprentice, <laughs> one season of The Apprentice, and now he is the negotiation. No, I know, I know. I'm yeah. just, me- I'm just messing. That, that he, did, he, like has done, he has done The Apprentice. But, I mean, again, what does that mean for aggressive militarization? And this doesn't have to be actual. This can also mean, like, in ter- terms of endearment, the way that Trump goes on Twitter threatening people and the way that he aggressively militarizes and presents the United States on this platform like, okay, you know we have the power we've done so before to subjugate you and your country, so do what we want. And is this exactly what we wanted? And I don't think that Trump arguing with Mr. Kim on Twitter, calling each other doters and small guys and whatnot um, is exactly what is the primary influencer of this peace treaty. I just think we need to think about this in terms of the larger conflict that we're already having between the United States and Russia. I've believed since the beginning of Trump being elected that this is just another stage in the Cold War. The fact that Russia has already been interfering in our elections and is probably going to do it again at the midterm elections just shows that our warfare has never ended. It just has moved away from nuclear warheads. Right. Yeah. No one wants to. No one wants to die in a nuclear apocalypse. Yeah. But they're willing to do cyber warfare. Right. Exactly. They're willing to do targeted assassinations. They just had news a couple weeks ago that they arrested and expelled Russian um, spies who are in the country looking for Russians who came to America for asylum and then you know got a new name, got a you know changed their identity. They had Russian spies come to the country looking for them for God knows what reason, right? We already know about these folks in England who were poisoned. All of this is still within the context of America and Russia having beef and them representing two very different ideologies in terms of the economy, in terms of trade, and in terms of the way that government should operate, right? Um, Russia is obviously a lot more repressive in its approach. Mm -hmm. Um, It likes to control media. It likes to control who and how and where. And honestly, we're seeing that Trump is doing that too. Like Trump is kind of taking a, a page out of that playbook, thinking about the way he engages with media, the way that he talks about CNN and all these other organizations of fake news, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The way that he will say blatant lies. like Propaganda, propaganda, yeah. propaganda. But no one will engage that, right? Propaganda through Fox <laughs> News, state-run media, basically. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's just, it can be very complicated to think through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think as far as we are right now, the real question is just, you know, 
can we trust North Korea not only to stick by whatever like choices are being made or whatever promises they're going to make, but then also how can we begin to move the United States out of this conversation to allow these two grown adult countries to hash out their own differences? I think the exceptionalism that goes towards American exceptionalism is the notion that we can negotiate everything. Exactly. Honestly, we're the ones creating a lot of these And that problems. is our responsibility. I mean, yeah. we could ask the question whether or not the pro- the issue between the two would have been solved a long time ago had we not been um, in- involved. And everyone's tea. Everyone's tea. From Israel, from the Jerusalem issue, yeah. to North Korea, to South Korea, to always being in the mix with China, to Russia being a part of our democratic process these yeah. days. And we need to get out of it. We yeah. need to mind our business and work on internal foundation because clearly it's struggling. Exactly. Period. So, uh, on to the petty. Y'all ready for the petty? Hold on, hold on. Y'all ready for the petty? We're about to get into the petty part of petty politics. So first we're going to start with Kanye West and his allegations, his charges against the American people that slavery was a choice. Well, let me just back up the black American people. Exactly. I I can't even talk. I'm not even going to cite to these tweets. I'm just going to summarize them for you because they were in abundance. Uh, apparently, he <laughs> apparently, got an autographed "Make America Great Again" hat. Okay, okay, so that's the first step. He did get an autographed hat. He got a MAGA hat. A MAGA hat. He loved it. Was it. Red. He was in the picture. He took a photo. Were they in a photo with the picture? Well, I mean, we could start from like 2016 when he went to Trump Tower, huh? Didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he? He's been. He's, he's been, been in this. He's, he's been, been in this. You know, he's he, been gone. I, I feel like he did endorse the presidency of um, Trump, and I feel like he did probably vote for him too. He did. He did. Didn't Kim Kardashian come out saying she voted? Uh, but no, they were endorsing Hillary Clinton, from oh. what I remember. But you know, I don't know. I don't know. The Kardashians are a wild what card, something always up their sleeves. You know, right? What did Kanye do like recently? What did That's Kanye do recently? Right. Okay, guys, he went on a rampage of tweets saying that he loves Trump. Trump is his brother. He loves his dragon energy. Um, and then dragon. anybody who pushed back against uh. what he was saying, he called them violators of free thinking. He said that these people were basically not open-minded. He tried to justify his endorsement of Trump as opposed to his endorsement of the Republican Party, particularly his endorsement of Trump with love, free thinking, and identity politics, saying Mm. like, okay, if you are black and you're voting Democrat, it's just because you're black. You're not necessarily being open-minded and free thinking. So that's where we're at right now with um, society. So he ended up going to TMV. He did. On an interview with TMZ, he at some point went into the intellectual exercise of trying to talk about the notion of slavery, right? To, to characterize his point, he doesn't exercise call it slavery. He doesn't like talking about slavery. He likes to talk about prisons, right? Like he mentioned something about the fact that he believes prison is a better term for mm-hmm. slavery, which is like, I mean, prisons are the modern day form of slavery. So I mean, you're not 13th. far from there. I mean, you're no. not far. You're not far off. A gem, a gem. Yeah. He went on to then say, um, in some type of hypothetical, that if People were enslaved for 400 years. It must have been a form of mental slavery because thousands of people being in chains were going to be more than enough to overwhelm the small number of slaveholders who were, you know, subordinating them, torturing them, killing them. I mean, he didn't even say it with that much bite. He didn't even say it with that much bite. What he said was, 400 years of slavery, that sounds like a choice to me. Right. Yeah, that's what he said. So that's exactly what he said. Well, that's a sound bite, but then he went further to say the whole mental slavery But, I mean, regardless of how he tried to conceptualize it, he basically said that slavery was a choice. So why don't we just get into it? First of all, Kanye. The legal, political, and social, and and economic, and educational, mostly, um, ramifications of slavery cannot be founded as a choice. The ways in which the government has subjugated, oppressed, and then perpetuated that oppression upon black people, not only through educational tools, but through legal tools, and so on and so forth, even housing districts um, tools where, where individuals are districted in certain housing zones so that they do not get proper education. Yes. We all know that the housing zone and the education zones are inextricably linked. Even with voting and gerrymandering and whatnot, and we gentrification continuously oppresses black people. Laws are made 
made that may not look like slavery on face, but if we look at the entire prison system, which is incentivized economically to lock up black people, to kill black people, to take the agency from black bodies, and to continue to do so under the guise of, oh, policemen are regulators, policemen are peacemakers and whatnot, and we continue to subscribe to these ideologies. We are then all in a mental, and not only mental, but physical model of slavery. So to say that this is a choice, I don't think it's a choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and, and it's not a choice. And everyone on my timeline, whether you be on Facebook, Twitter, I don't care, you're over here talking about, oh, I understand, deleted, blocked. Okay? I'm not going for it, and I'm not arguing this. And, and it's quite irresponsible. It's irresponsible. It's, 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 it's at just ir- best. At best, right? It is extremely irresponsible for Kanye to utter those words. But I also think that it is unfortunate it is unfortunate that mm-hmm. Kanye is in a place, mm-hmm. right, that, that he can disregard all of this insight because I'm not going to even dare think that Kanye doesn't know these things. I'm not going to even dare think. I, I, I hope he don't know, um, and, that's, and, and he is not aware mm-hmm. of slavery. You just and, hope he's stupid. And, yeah, I, hope, I really I hope, hope he's stupid. stupid. He's not... I really hope he's stupid I... because other than that, for you to know slavery and Jim Crow and, and and lynching and black codes and mass incarceration and mm-hmm. police brutality, for you to know all of these things right. and still utter the words, you let them come out your mouth. You let them sink in your mind that slavery is a choice. I mean, dude— You've lost it. So, I mean, this can either be one or two things for me. One, this can be a publicity stunt. Kanye has several albums dropping. Two singles after, dropped last week. Yeah, you know two singles. Whoop, did, did that whoop did he do one drop? That whoop did he whoop. That was him? Scoop do. That was Kanye. Like, whoop did he do? Scoop did he do? That's Kanye. I didn't, I don't know. <laughs> like, yes. I did not know this <laughs> Okay, <laughs> well, that was him. people say that and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, no, that was Kanye. So, so he has a couple of albums dropping apparently after coming out of a sort of musical slumber. He's awakened the dragon and the dragon is him and his best friend Trump, by the way, uh, and created all this controversy in his own words. Um, so it could be a publicity stunt in order for to for album sales. The Kardashians, especially with their connection in, with Kanye and Kanye and their connection with them, are used to that kind of thing. I think that mm-hmm. exploiting their own personal preferences and business and affiliations is a marketing tool and has notoriously been a mar- notoriously and nefariously been a marketing tool of the Kardashians. So that could yeah. be an issue. Or it could be that he believes this. I mean, <laughs> and I think it's Because the, the way in which he's interacted with the economy, for me, has been very prejudicial to black people. For example, Kanye continuously talks about how black people are not represented in the fashion industry. However, when he finally gets a clothing line, he targets white people. He mm. subscribes to white people, and he caters to them. No one mm. is buying—well, because disproportionately and obviously unfairly— Economically, black people are disparaged, especially when it comes to measuring wealth, um, black and white wealth. Right now, black wealth is 15 times less than white wealth. So if you think about who he's targeting with this clothing line, these these Walmart shirts with holes in them, it's not the black community that he claims that he wants to help so much. And we also know value. So it's like, exactly. I'm not about, if I'm already poor, I'm not about to buy your poor man, like, holes in, in shirt I, I'm not like, going to, I will make it. I will, no. Exactly, no. your tarnished uh, gear. It's but not, anyway. it's and, not and exactly. And the power of rhetoric, um, I think we often undermine that words have power. Mm-hmm. And and there are people and systems and structures that are thriving off of this idea that we oh, live yeah. in a post-racial America oh, yeah. and that racism doesn't exist anymore. And for many, they would say racism never existed before. Mm-hmm. And so there are people that are thriving off of this notion. And for you as a black brother, as a black man, to utter those words, um, you are perpetuating a toxic mindset that disregards the effects of racism in this country and the yeah. people who are hurting. And th- and and these are people that look like you. Exactly. Not only that, not only that, the way he genuflects amongst the Kardashians. Yeah. Even saying that he would change his name to Kardashian, who are notorious, again, and nefariously involved in black appropriation, um, cultural ap- appropriation at its best, black exploitation. When Kylie came out with her lip line, she didn't even have color swatches for black people. Um, and she didn't have um, things that would match black skin. And all of them are having black children. So your own kids can't even wear your makeup. And so it's just his interest. Mm-hmm 
interaction with the Kardashians, his interaction with the president, all of it, all of, so on and so forth, is getting him canceled. But what do you think is Kim Kardashian's um, role as his wife? They they are a couple, and so for you to make such a dangerous statement. Is this a statement that you've made the card, the Kim to your card. wife already? Right. And uh, y'all dialogued yeah. about, do you support this, Kim, is the question. Is this, do you believe this way as well, more so? So Kim as another figure. Uh, Roland, in, but why do we care? This is not our business. To be, uh, just because she's his wife, we're assessing and dissecting her role on a more social spectrum. Why? Yeah. Do, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm... I'm a woman, and before my feminism becomes my race, I'm a black woman, and I'm used to these kinds of things. So I understand how it feels to be put in a place where, okay, well, it's your responsibility fixing. Even we talked about this in a prior podcast where we were saying, Oprah 2020, why did you say she couldn't run? She shouldn't run for president, Cam. Why are we always telling black women they should fix the problems of men right. or whatever, or the world, or basically whatever? Right. Now, I'm not saying that Kim is a black woman, but I'm saying just because she is a woman generally, I just want to give her that same respect. Like, as a woman, why do we have to say that, oh, she has to fix the issues of her husband? Her husband's crazy. She I don't, don't care. I don't subscribe to the Kardashians. I don't know what they believe in. Yeah. And the thing is, because I know that they know their fan base is black, why... Who who who's watching the Kardashians? I think. But I mean, primary. we are we've been talked about the Pepsi ad. We've been talking about it's the a, lip filler. Exactly. Kit. They, it's just. So I wasn't expecting anything positive from no. him, right? Mm-hmm. In terms mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. whether they were giving him any counsel or anything like that. Here's how I feel, though. Like I think, especially when it comes to Kanye, I think we because immediately after this came out, everyone thought back to George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. Everyone's thinking, how do we get from that Kanye to the current Kanye that's wearing a MAGA hat and, like, you know, I got love for Trump and all that stuff, right? Uh I think the transition is that, in many ways, he's grown into wealth. His his wealth has increased exponentially since then. He has then, obviously, kind of, you know, brought himself into the presence of whiteness and kind of subscribed to that. But I also think that... And we already talked about the idea of it being for publicity because he's coming out with apparently two albums in June, one for himself and then one with him and Kid Cudi. So the notion is that, yeah, he probably does have things to promote and that did get him into the news. But I think it matters less. Like, it matters what he says, obviously, and that's the point. But, like, I think it also matters what conservative media uses his words for and how he responds to that. You see what I mean? Here are a couple examples. Immediately after he tweeted that, People like Trump Jr. were on Twitter, Laura Ingram, all those types of folks. Probably yeah. Tommy Lauren probably said something that I didn't oh even look gosh, at because I don't care. So. And so people were engaged with this and they were saying, see, look at this black guy. You see, look, we got some folks out here who like us. Yeah, we got a blackie over here. Look at my African-American, right? Literally. Um, mm-hmm. And then even when, when Chance the Rapper came in, and tried to say, you know... Unnecessary. Yes, unnecessary. He was trying his very best to be a moderator, and it didn't work. It didn't, didn't work at all. Leave. Mm-hmm. But he That's said, you know, black people don't have to be Democrats, which isn't what we're talking about. No we're one's... Saying, what we're, we're not talking about identity politics. Exactly, exactly. Um, and even so, there's a difference There's a difference between being a Democrat, a Republican, and being a Trump supporter, because even Republicans aren't backing him. Right. So over the weekend, Trump was actually doing a speech at the NRA National Convention in Dallas, and he gave... Kanye another shout out. So he's there saying, you know, yeah, Kanye, if you saw on Twitter, Kanye really appreciates me. And as a result, after Kanye did that, if you look at my poll numbers, my African-American support has doubled from 11% to 22%. Like, that's a great thing. Uh, But but like data, right, apparently is showing and people are kind of questioning whether that data is legit. But if it's true, that means that Kanye is now actively making Trump like better. He is improving Trump's character. He is making Trump more of a viable president, right, in terms of the public perception. That's a problem. In terms of public perception. That's a problem, right? That is more, like, and, and how does he react to that? Like, now that he's been mentioned at a, in an official speech by the president, how does Kanye now react to that? How does he think about his influence now that he's shown and proven that he is influential? First of all, he already thinks he's a god. So, I mean, he probably <laughs> thought that it was a likely result. But also, I think that, I mean... He even said that Obama didn't make him feel like he could be president. Trump made him feel like he could be president. So that was his thing. And so I think that it's just a natural following. But speaking of just shedding light and public perception of things that are going on in America, things that are going on regarding race relations and gun control and black male imprisonment and Black Lives Matter and the influence of black entertainment on society and hyperconsumerism. speaking of all that, all of those wonderful things were encapsulated in this 
dope video by Childish Gambino. Hmm. Mm. This is America. This is America. This is America. I really. I mean, did y'all, 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 y'all feel like the? Hey. I want you to edit in a little hey. snippet did, in did, there. Did you, yeah. do you remember it was like, hey, yeah. hey, He's this getting is America. It. Yeah, he did. He did. Shut up and everything. Yeah. Then he did a little pretty. He said he was pretty, and I said it was dope. I really. Right. All good. Did you see the way that he pulled out the gun though when he when he shot the the hooded dude? No. Like I don't know if you saw, but it was just like it was just the most like. It was like flamboyant and yeah, just like he was, it was like, a lo- yeah, bam. <laughs> I was just like, it was you a were lot. so rude for them. But like, okay, let's just recap the video. It's all set up in a warehouse. Everyone's kind of running around. Cars. And there's and... cars. There's a lot of black folks running around dancing. There's a choir at one point. And it really is just Childish Gambino running around shooting black folks. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, dancing okay. with, yeah. with, with, with black children. Off. Yeah, with a shirt off yeah. and a big old afro, right? There's a moment where he smokes weed and, and continues jigging, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it was great just because I feel like the abruptness of all of the different actions throughout the music video mm-hmm. were reminders of the fact that this is America. Because almost, I think it was immediately after he would like do something extremely violent, like shoot the black dude. There was a moment where he shot an entire uh, choir yeah. with a, what looked yeah. like an AR-15, yeah. potentially. Like, I mean, they just went down. Yeah, they that all was like went a down. reenactment of the Charleston And then he'll look at the camera yeah. and be like, this is America. Yeah. So I don't know. People actually, have, I've been reading criticism um, from folks saying that they thought it was problematic that he shot black folks. No, well, I mean, he was, it was showing. What do you mean? Yeah, if you shot white people, well, it would be untrue, non-representative. Also true. Exactly. Also true. Yeah. But. I mean, so, for example, when we go into it, there were several interpretations of the video I loved. I loved hearing someone say that, for example, in the first scene, when he, him and these kids are doing these, like, popular dances and stuff, we're not thinking, we're not looking at the background of the video. In the background, people are running around and a cop car is exploding and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and oh. he said, and it shows, like, how black people are influenced and entertained by American society, and they're distracted from distracted. actual issues going. And he's like, these kids, um, and he's showing how, like, the media is an influ- influencing and targeting these children to distract them from these issues. Like, so symbols like that, and then even, like, with the shooting that you mentioned, the church shooting, that was a play on the Charleston shooting. And in mm. one of his lyrics, he's like, I need a gun, this is a gun. Him carrying around a gun was a shot at the NRA and their inability to see that we need restrictions yeah. or regulations, at least. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a strong, strong message for this reality that black folk, we dancing, but we in danger. <laughs> I love the way you said that. We dancing. That's we, real. You said, do but I hear me? Danger. We That's dance, real. We, we, we are in danger. Nevertheless, we're, we're despite dancing. all. Despite yeah. all, we're, we're in danger. And it's very, very important, I think, this is an example of why Kanye is so problematic is because we are really, really in danger and we are acting as if we're not. People really are dying out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're not and, mobilizing. And, and, and we're not mobilizing. And I mean, we are well, not, we're mobilizing to some extent, but the reality is when you when you go to the hood, mm-hmm. I was just speaking to one of my brothers the other day, um, um, Christian Terrell, um, who was wrongfully convicted, uh, wrongfully accused, and served an entire sentence in jail mm-hmm. and wow. came out saying, y'all, I really didn't do it. Wow. And he began to share with me how folk in the hood, folk that's living around around them in this neighborhood, these people ain't talking about what's happening and don't even really understand often the systems and the structures that are in place and the racist infrastructure that our country yep. um, is, is perpetuating. And so the conversation that is happening is not about this is America. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that is not the conversation that are happening in our neighborhoods and, and in our black community in large part and so we have to figure out how to make them aware help them become aware that y'all we are in danger Mm -hmm. exactly and I'm happy that we had a video that was at least in some part able to reflect this because we don't have a lot of that especially with Kanye and the distractions of of what's happening with him and then like further distractions what's happening in politics and for people to be enraged about black people being shot when clearly like that was performative, as we would say, um, to show that black males aged anywhere between 15 and 34 are considered right now to be nine times more likely to be killed by law enforcement than, for example, white males. That 
those kinds of things need to be shed a light on. And especially yeah. if people are subscribing so heavily to the entertainment industry, whereas we are getting an 11 percent uprise in the approval of the presidential rating on behalf of African-Americans, which is what Cam said. And we see that uh, media culture and uh, musical culture is so heavily influential upon the black community, then that this is the kind of things that needs to be happening. And then celebrities should be using their platforms yes. in this way to make these kinds of videos and to show what's actually happening. Yes. So, so kudos what? to Childish Gambino. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly yeah. why um, Beyonce has used her music and her performances in the way that she has. And um, I, I think her recent performance at Beachella. Um, oh, um, I didn't see that one. Which, Cam shot in person, um, though. Uh, did you? Oh, look <laughs> yeah, at you. I did. Um, you know, I, I, I think was also important because in addition to shedding light on the the danger that we're in, we also have to find ways to use these platforms to empower our community as well exactly. and uplift our culture and remind us. I think that's why the Black is Beautiful campaign um, that mm-hmm. happened a long, long time ago and, and, and even notions like Black Power were so, so important for our communities because mm-hmm. we have to reinstill in our people um, that that they are amazing and that they are beautiful and that they are important because that has to work in hand with awareness of the danger and the structures that are in place that are perpetuating our oppression. I completely agree. Shout out to finally somebody, you know, kind of shout standing up. Shout out to up. somebody, exactly. Yeah. Um, shout out to the folks who are using their platforms properly, or at least in, in a way that I think is legit, uh, because yeah, some folks exactly. are definitely not. And then if you don't have something productive to say, don't. Shout out to you for not saying it. Not saying it. Like, shout out to you for shutting up. Hundred bands, hundred bands, hundred bands. Contraband, contraband, contraband. I got the plug on a hawker. Whoa. They're going to find you like hawker. All right, well, this has been another episode of Petty Politics. Bringing you the petty. Kind of political sometimes. But more so the petty, I think. Especially the petty. So, Jonathan, where are some places that our listeners can find you? Do you do talks? Do you have a YouTube channel? Do you have social media? What are your plans? Okay, so you can find me on Instagram at M-I-N-J Allen. So, Min J Allen. I'm on Facebook, Jonathan L. Allen. Twitter is also at M-I-N-J Allen. You can also follow me and my fiance's YouTube channel. It's Jonathan and Derek Allen Young. We have a new YouTube series called The Bedroom, where we as a young um, gay couple who has been together for blacks, Insert the black. Look. <laughs> Insert justice. Do you hear me? Uh, literally, we we have been together for near for over six years now, and we get a chance to talk about um, domination in our society mm-hmm. and gender roles and stigmas around homosexuality and faith and love and what that means as we continue to move forward in this world and attempt to make it a better place. Dope. So follow me there. If y'all want to email me, you can email me at min, um, M-I-N dot J Allen at gmail.com. And I'll good. love to respond if you need a speaker, if you need to be empowered. Need some spiritual let's, guidance, let's maybe? Let's make it happen. Some spiritual guidance, okay. some justice? Let's make okay. it happen. Thank you so much. 